Hello and welcome to the Spine and Nerve Podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Hoves. And my name is Dr. Nicholas Carvelis. And today we are, well, Dr. K, what are we talking about today? <laughs> so today, the main things we wanted to accomplish is to discuss the uh, activity, the potential impact of glial cells on uh, the development of chronic pain. And part of the reason that I really wanted to bring this topic up today and we uh, you know, we'll be efficient and uh, to the point with this topic because um, there's so much more to understand and explore uh, uh, in regards to this. But the main reason I wanted to bring it up is because with our current treatment options that we uh, predominantly util utilize in management of pain, especially from a medication standpoint, we largely focus on nerves and neuron uh, uh, transmission of pain. Um, and as we know, <clears throat> there is uh, frustration, uh, obviously in our parts, but uh, very much on the patient part as well, in regards to the clinical effectiveness uh, of these different treatment options, but then also the many barriers in regards to tolerance and side effects that come along with the therapeutics that are targeting uh, these neurons and nerves. So uh, main key points that that we really want to drive home today is that the transmission of pain and the development of chronic pain is not uh, limited to uh, nerves and neuro, uh, neuron communication itself, um, but there are these glial cells, both and not limited to the central nervous system, but both in the central nervous system as well as in the peripheral nervous system that play a significant role in the uh, transmission of pain and in the development of chronic pain. And lastly, the the last major point being that there are some therapeutics starting to come into play that we can potentially utilize uh, for our patients with chronic pain, especially in certain conditions. And to keep an eye open uh, for the research and the development of new therapeutics targeting glial cells, because I think it's one of the important frontiers of uh, chronic pain. So to summarize what Dr. K said, we are going to geek out on neurotransmitters and uh, some deep science. Um, but to to bring it back a little bit, maybe just um, a kind of obviously a, a as always a very phenomenal uh, descriptor. But you know when we're when we are talking about chronic pain, one of the words uh, or phrases that I think has um, become used pretty widely uh, is this theory of wind up. Right, and then and then Dr. K will kind of take us further down the road and get us all into uh, a lot of the actual transmission of, of these. Um, so definitely put your uh, organic chemistry and uh, neurophysiology uh, hats on. Um, but essentially, wind up is the process of our body becoming essentially acclimated to pain, and the and those pain responses uh, changing. Uh, a signaling pattern over time, right? And so, um, you know, something that initially, you know, might have scaled a, a one on a zero to 10 scale um, over time as the body becomes more and more acclimated to this chronic pain, uh, we end up seeing that not only does it end up with a larger signal, but also a longer lasting signal uh, that's going through. And that happens for a lot of different reasons, um, but essentially what we know is that the longer that the body is in pain, the longer that these uh, signals and stronger that these signals end up becoming, right? And so, it, not for all patients, but for some patients, right? And I think this is the subset of patients that we end up seeing often where they do are experiencing chronic pain, 
Um, and it's, you know, it's that, the, you know, the, something that initially caused a very specific amount of pain for a, a specific duration ends up causing significantly more pain for a longer duration. Uh, and the longer the patient is experiencing this chronic pain, uh, the longer and the stronger that those signals can become. Um, and there's a, a nice long uh, cascade that's involved uh, in, 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 in this process. Um, but essentially what that ends up meaning for patients is that, you know, things end up hurting more than it, than it should and it gets worse over time. Yeah, I think that's a fair kind of like 50,000 foot view. No, absolutely. I think it's very well said. And, you know, along those along those lines with the concept of wind up, um, as Dr. Hovez was stating, we you know, we know that there is an upregulation, uh, as you've heard us, you know, say in, in previous talks, too, there's an upregulation of receptors and transmitters. And I think one good way to to think about it is that in general, uh, there's this balance between neuroexcitatory transmission and um, and down regulation. Also, uh, a balance between the dark side and <laughs> the light. <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah, true. But um, yeah, there, there's in our in our nervous system there's this uh, interplay between excitatory transmission, and you'll of, often hear uh, glutamate uh, thrown out there uh, in, in terms of one of the main transmitters there, or GABA in terms of inhibitory. So that inhibitory versus excitatory balance, and in situations such as chronic pain and wind-up, that balance is significantly uh, thrown off. And specifically with this talk today, we wanted to uh, emphasize how glial cells can play a role in that. Um, Real quickly before we talk about glial cells, just to kind of review, and there's different exact terminology to use to describe this, but in general, when we're thinking about the process of pain transmission, we're thinking about transduction uh, of that signal, transmission of that signal, modulation of that signal, and then uh, uh, perception of, of that signal. So like I said, there's different exact terminology, but one way to think about it, transduction, transmission, modulation, and perception. Now, um, if we think about where each of those uh, different processes are occurring, I think it's always important to keep that in mind because when we're reaching for therapeutics for our patients, we want to be thinking, okay, what exact pain pathology am I treating? And what in this therapeutic that I'm using, where are where along that pathway uh, is this uh, medication or procedure or this treatment going to have an impact? Um, because I think the more that we can know that and the more that we can convey that to our patients, the more confidence they'll have in the treatment. I think one problem in general is that, uh, and I, th I think we've all heard this from our, our chronic pain patients, is that uh, when we bring up a therapy, they you know, they say, well, I don't want to be a guinea pig. You're just throwing things um, at me. Um, so they feel like we're kind of experimenting on them. And I think it's, you know, going back, I know we talked about in a previous uh, talk, we talked about that one study that, uh, you know, patients were uh, receiving um, uh, receiving an analgesic. They were receiving an opioid, but they were either told this is going to hurt or this is a placebo or this is going to relieve your pain. And just that simple uh, 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 message of, of what the th treatment is going to do made a huge impact on the response um, of the patient. Um, and so I think bottom line is how we're delivering to our patients 
what we're doing with our therapeutics uh, ends up being critical. And the more that we can say, okay, you have this type of pain and this medication has been shown through research to have a positive impact on it and this is why we're using it, I think then that that leads to the greater potential for the success that we're looking for with, uh, with our treatments. So sorry for the long uh, um, uh, discussion in regards to that, but that comes back to kind of always thinking about the pain pathway and what specifically we're targeting with the different uh, medications and therapeutics we're using and why we're using them. Um, uh, sorry to go off on a little bit a tangent one more time, but I think muscle relaxers is a good example of this because we we all use muscle relaxers constantly, right? Because acute uh, uh, back pain comes into or, or acute on chronic back pain or back back spasms come into our clinics constantly. And when we're reaching for our you know muscle relaxers, it's important to keep in, in mind that these muscle relaxers all have uh, different mechanisms of action and they come from different classes. Just, you know, just as an example, uh, something like cyclobenzaprine is actually incredibly structurally similar to a tricyclic antidepressant. So, for example, if you think that that patient does have a significant component of neuropathic pain, then yeah, it, it would, I think it may be reasonable to consider uh, cyclobenzaprine for that uh, patient, but keep in mind it can be incredibly uh, sedative, and if they have any cardiac issues, then you want to be very cautious with that. Um, something like uh, baclofen or tizanidine, I think for both Dr. Hovez and I, those are probably uh, our favorites in regards to pain patients because we know that baclofen and tizanidine, not only are they actually the truest in terms of actual having actually having uh, muscle relaxation properties, but they also have mechanisms in terms of treating pain, um, and then fairly good side effect uh, profiles as well. So, uh, just you know, uh, along those lines, like I said, thinking about where in the uh, pain pathways our, our different uh, therapeutics are are acting. So. Um, just to review one more time, transduction, transmission, modulation, perception. So the, the glial cells that uh, we, we wanted to emphasize today, they uh, are going to be playing a major role, I would, I would interpret it, you know, based upon the, the evidence we have at this point, in terms of the modulation of the signal. Now, that's going to have an effect along that transmission um, and uh, 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 both in the peripheral nervous system as well as in the uh, central nervous system, but it's really the glial cells are modifying that signal. They're modulating that signal transmission. Quick review, what are glial cells? So there's uh, five main uh, glial cells that we're aware of currently, three of them being in the uh, central nervous system and two of them being in the peripheral nervous system. So in the central nervous system, as we know, we have the oligodendrocytes, the microglial, and the astrocytes. And in the peripheral nervous system, we have the Schwann cells and the uh, satellite glial cells. Um, the glial cells that seem to have the largest implications in terms of uh, pain seem to be the microglial cells, the astrocytes, and then the uh, satellite uh, glial cells in the peripheral nervous system. So um, just emphasizing again that with our treatments, we want to not just think about neurons and, and nerve transmission, but we want to think about these glial cells and the potential impact we can have on them um, because these glial cells, when they're uh, functioning abnormally, what do they do? Well, the research would show that 
if glial cells are acting abnormally, they're going to lead to pain sensitization, they're going to cause sleep disorders, they're going to cause mood disorders. Um, does that sound like any of our patients, uh, any of our <laughs> chronic pain patients with, you know, uh, sensitization, um, uh, with mood disorders, sleep disorders? Um, cognitive uh, changes have actually been shown through glial cell aberrant activity. So, you know, these are our chronic pain patients. and. Um, if we can have a positive effect on those glial cells, then at least the uh, emerging emerging research, as well as our clinical experience, would would tell us that we we can have a positive impact for these chronic pain patients. So, let's let's uh, let's step out of the um, intense amount of science for a second, because um, I I know that our audience is very smart, but my head's a little hurting. It's seven thirty in the morning on a Friday, um, so. Glial cells are involved in modulating the signals. By modulating these signals that are coming in, the glial cells are able uh, or capable of causing a lot of other problems uh, for patients, right? Like you brought up uh, sensitization, you brought up uh, sleep disorders, you know, a lot of the things that our patients normally experience uh, because these signals are being modulated in ways that aren't pro them feeling better essentially is that is that kind of summarize yes. it a little bit yeah okay yeah, and so and so because these glial cells that mostly live in the periphery um, and you know not necessarily not not generally the the central uh, glial cells are are causing you know these improper modulation of the of the signals to be able to cause a lot of uh, these additional uh, factors to be involved and not just this kind of you know, no susceptive sec um, ability of pain where it's like, okay, the bone is broken, it hurts, um, or something along those lines, uh, we end up with a lot of these other interplays in the entire um, health or uh, well-being of the patient that aren't necessarily related to that initial signaling cascade. Is that is that a fair assessment also? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I guess the last kind of thing I wanted to bring up before we let you guys go and enjoy your Friday and weekend is that there are actually some therapies out there right now um, uh, from a medication standpoint that can, uh, that have been sh demonstrated to have a, a positive impact on glial cell activity, um, uh, including the microglia in the central nervous system and then the um, uh, satellite glial, glial cells in the peripheral nervous system. And one of those would be a low-dose naltrexone. Now, low-dose naltrexone is an attractive option uh, to me, uh, and I've used it uh, quite a, a bit in my uh, patients, especially uh, for patients who have um, autoimmune uh, in inflammatory conditions, and especially for uh, patients who have the diagnosis of myofascial pain syndrome or fibromyalgia. Can you uh, tell our patients, our listeners who may or may not be familiar with naltrexone what naltrexone is? Yeah, so low-dose naltrexone, uh, as, as, as we know, obviously, uh, naltrexone um, traditionally was used as a mu opioid antagonist, but what's interesting is that at a, a low, lower dose, so we're talking about uh, uh, doses of around 4.5 milligrams, that's what has been studied to have the most significant uh, positive effects for these patients, there seems to be... Um, uh, this paradoxical effect of rather than blocking a, a, an opioid receptor uh, at the higher doses, that um, not only can there be things such as uh, uh, 
activation, well, I shouldn't necessarily say activation, but you can actually stimulate production of new opioid receptors that then your endogenous, uh, and stimulation of the endogenous opioid system through low-dose naltrexone. But that's not the main mechanism of action. Based on the research we have, it seems like the main mechanism of action of low-dose naltrexone is this positive effect on uh, the uh, glial cells, including specifically the microglial cells of the uh, central nervous system. Um, and as a consequence, we see this uh, neuroinflammation that we've kind of talked about, this uh, sickness syndrome uh, with all those negative effects is se seems to be significantly improved. So as an example, Dr. Younger and her uh, and colleagues in 2013 did a uh, randomized uh, uh, placebo-controlled study with uh, low-dose naltrexone for fibromyalgia patients, and they found that there was a significant improvement in pain and function for these patients. And that's exciting to me because um, you know these are difficult patients to treat, and a lot of our our treatment options are limited by their side effects. You know, the Lyrica, uh, sorry, sorry, the pregabalin, the duloxetine, the melisopran. These uh, medications uh, are not necessarily always tolerated by our patients, or sometimes they're already on high doses of SSRIs, and we're limited in terms of the SNRIs that we can use, and then they don't tolerate the pregabalin or, or gabapentin. Um, so this is another treatment option to consider. Now, keep in mind at this point in time that you will be going through a compounding pharmacy, pharmacy but the nice thing is that this is a relatively inexpensive treatment. Of course, there's still going to be some cost limitations for some patients, but I've been able to get a month's supply for about $40 the compounding pharmacy for uh, these medications. So although clearly that still can be cost-limiting to some patients, for patients who are really suffering with inflammatory uh, conditions, especially rheumatologic inflammatory conditions and or um, something like uh, fibromyalgia, uh, then I think this is something that you, know, you could consider in your arsenal, um, consider in your toolbox for treatments. But um, so yeah. if, if we're talking about this as a treatment option for patients um, and we're talking about something that's going to be affecting the modulation of signals, uh, how do you counsel the patients in terms of uh, time frame, right? I mean, obviously, a lot of the patients uh, do get into the mindset, and we've talked about this before, about a patient, you know, I take a pill, I expect something to happen. Right. And so, you know, if we're talking about signaling cascades and, you know, obviously we have this conversation with every neuropathic agent, um, but, you know, this is something that specifically works on the modulation portion of that signaling cascade. You know, what, what's the time frame that you generally talk to the patients about? Is it similar to what, what if you're talking about a neuropathic agent where say, look, we want to get you on a stable dose and then try to keep you there for somewhere around six or eight weeks before we really give a judgment? Or is it different than that? No, I think that's an excellent point. And yeah, it goes back to, I think, really counseling the patient that, look, um, this has, you, you know, the, 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 the symptoms, the disease process that you're dealing with in terms of this chronic pain state has developed over a long period of time. There have been changes that have occurred in your nervous system that are fairly uh, ingrained uh, and uh, uh, cemented to some degree in that nervous system. They've taken a long time to develop, and it, it, in a treatment that can actually get to the root of the problem to some degree, which is the exciting thing about these type of therapies, uh, because we're not just necessarily uh, treating a, a symptom for a transient period of time, but we're actually trying to have a positive neuromodulation effect uh, on the pathologic changes in the nervous system. It is going to take time. So uh, to 
uh, more directly answer your question, I would generally tell patients based on clinical experience and the research that's out there at least uh, at least four to six weeks before we would make a decision on whether or not this treatment was really being effective for the patient because it's going to take time for that positive neuroplasticity to occur. Mm, neuroplasticity. <laughs> we act, that's the first time we've said that this conversation. Yeah. Which, which is actually which is actually interesting because this whole talk <laughs> is about neuroplasticity and yet somehow uh, we didn't lead with uh, that as uh, an inlet for this conversation. Um, anyways, uh, glial cells, glial cells, glial cells. When you start, when you brought up this idea as a topic, um, in my head, I heard little pumps, Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang, <laughs> and all I heard was glial cells, glial cells, glial cells. <laughs> I think we should make a song about glial cells so that people pay attention to it. Uh, <laughs> but anyways, that's besides the point. Uh, are there any other things that you wanted to add uh, or finish up with in terms of obviously low-dose naltrexone being something that um, there's a lot of interesting research that's been coming out uh, over the past seven years, I think, or so. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, it is a compounded medication, which does make it a little bit challenging because people have to know where a compounding pharmacy is. Um, but kind of give it, finish this up with some, uh, some other aspects of this if you have anything. Otherwise... No, no, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. I think, like we said, key points just being that, you know, keep in mind with pain, it's not just the, the nerves, but also the glial cells that are uh, contributing to and, and uh, uh, causing the chronic pain states. So uh, continue to think about that pain pathway when we're thinking about our different therapeutics and keep our eyes open to different glial cell modulators that may be uh, coming uh, in the future. Yeah, and so because we didn't actually lead with this, we'll close with it. Neuroplasticity, the body is able to make adaptations to the signaling cascade. Uh, they are, we have uh, maladaptive uh, neuroplasticity, which is what chronic pain is, right? We end up with this wind-up sensation. We end up with uh, inappropriate glial cell um, uh, functioning, or not functioning, but um, signaling cascades, uh, and end up with this upregulation uh, of pain signaling throughout the body. Um, our goal uh, with a lot of the things that we think about is to use neuroplasticity to our advantage. Um, and so, obviously, lots of different ways to do it, um, you know, from gentle movement. I, you know, this is the same reason why I always tell people the first thing that I want them to do if they've been dealing with pain for 10 years is to get in the pool and stand there for five minutes, right? We're trying to change that signaling cascade uh, in any positive manner that we can. And so trying to address the glial cells is going to be one of those ways uh, that we can uh, and should think about uh, as we're continuing to figure out how this is all evolving. Uh, and hopefully as science uh, continues to push things forward and some newer medications that are in the research uh, stage end up making their way through, uh, we will have more options uh, to be able to address this component of uh, the signaling cascades. Um, that's all I got. Dr. K? That's it. All right. Everybody, thank you guys again for paying attention and listening to this. If you made it this far on this episode, I am really impressed because this was a very heady scientific episode, um, which is really what Dr. Carvelis means in uh, in Filipino. Um, he's not Filipino, but I am. And uh, when you say Dr. Carvelis in Tagalog, uh, it means really scientific and heady. So, <laughs> so so thank you guys for listening. Uh, once again, this is for education and entertainment only. This is not meant to be medical advice. If any of this sounds interesting to you, please discuss it with your primary care doctor or at the very least reach out to us and we can try to point you in the right direction uh, as far as research, research is concerned. Have a great day.